Hey there, Ruby Jones here, the host of 7am. Welcome to The Weekend Read, where we ask writers for the monthly magazine to read their long-form essays. Today on the show, Mark McKenna, Professor of History at the University of Sydney, will be reading his piece from the latest edition of The Monthly. It's called The Stunted Country, and in it he argues that there can be no possibility of an Australian republic without constitutional recognition of Indigenous Australians. To hear more Weekend Reads, you can subscribe to The Weekend Read in Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Mark, thank you for coming in to read your piece. Could you start by telling me about why you decided to write it? Um, I guess in the 1990s, I was um, fairly active in the debate about an Australian Republic and uh, took part in the referendum campaign that led up to the failed referendum of the Republic in November 99. And I suppose increasingly over the years, it struck me that it was quite astounding, quite startling what we were asking of Indigenous Australians when you think about it. We were saying to them, look, this minimalist republic, this liquid paper republic, is more important to us. We want to do this first before we want to address, address the fact of your exclusion from the constitution. And I think that the fact that we tried to do that in the 90s and we were willing to put that to referendum before anything, any question in regard to Indigenous Australians was, you know, was symptomatic of our priorities. And so that was a starting point because we're still in the same situation. We've gone, we've gone, it's 50 years since the 1967 referendum. We've had countless committees, leader after leader keeps saying we can't rush into this. We've got to take, you know, we've got to get the referendum through. And without leadership, without a government and a prime minister who is going to stand up and argue for this day in, day out, it simply won't happen. So what was I doing by writing? Um... Yeah, I'm trying to put the whole question, small aim, trying to put the whole question of Australia's independence on a different footing, to not think about our independence just as a severance of the links with the United Kingdom, but to actually turn it round and say, well, why does it matter? What is important for us in becoming a republic, right? Surely you have to start the answer to that question with this country now and the inequalities, the injustices that are there in our own constitution before you start talking about when the Queen dies or Harry and Meghan. They're secondary. They're kind of amusing, but secondary. So it's really a question of national identity. It is, but it's trying to suggest that that identity can actually have, should have a fundamental constitutional basis that addresses the exclusion of Indigenous Australians from the Constitution and enshrines a voice in the Constitution. It's no good any longer to just think about the question of a republic as, oh, do you think we'll become a republic when the Queen dies or when, when will it happen? No, uh, that's not good enough. Um, you've got to turn the question and look harder at your own country and what's wrong with our own constitution. That's where we should start. And Mark, could you describe to me where you were as you wrote this piece? I wrote this essay, 
on the south coast of New South Wales, which is the country of the Ewan people. And I've spent a lot of my time and work as a historian writing about the history of that area. So I guess this essay, you know, grows out of that encounter with that history in that part of the country, as has a lot of stuff that I've written. Thank you, Mark. I look forward to hearing it. Westminster Abbey, 11am, Friday, July 7, 2000. It was billed as a service for Australia, the highlight of a week's commemorative events to mark the centenary of the passage of the Commonwealth of Australia Constitution Act 1900 through British Parliament. It was this legislation, largely forgotten today, that approved the Australian Constitution, which was already sanctioned by the Australian people, of course, through referendum, and enabled the Federation of the Australian Colonies on January 1, 1901. Looking around the Abbey, I had a pew because I was teaching at the Menzies Centre for Australian Studies in London. It seemed that Australia's entire political class was present. Prime Minister John Howard, Leader of the Opposition, Kim Beazley, State Premiers, Judges, Senior Public Servants, Corporate Executives, and various characters who could be loosely defined as professional Australians. If Shane Warne wasn't there, he should have been. The Queen and Prince Philip were certainly in attendance, along with a sprinkling of lesser-known royals, as they're politely described in the trade. Australian High Court Judges Ian Callanan and Kenneth Hayne were sitting directly in front of me. As the congregation rose to its feet to sing God Save the Queen, I peered through the gap between their wives' hats to see New South Wales Premier Bob Carr and his Victorian counterpart, Steve Brax, standing together in silence. Archbishop Peter Hollingworth delivered a worthy homily. John Howard recited a few verses from Philippians 4 in his typical nasal tone. And the choir delivered a stirring performance of Bruce Woodley's I Am Australian, which was already familiar from a well-worn trail of television commercials, including the Yes campaign for an Australian Republic in 1999. We didn't need the libretto. Then, almost as an afterthought, the sound of a lonely didgeridoo drifted around the abbey. The entire week in London seemed to be an endless procession of official openings and drawn-out closings. But there was one event in particular, a gathering to celebrate the impending centenary of Federation and the recent opening of an Arthur Boyd exhibition, which was unforgettable for its sheer abandonment. Hundreds of Australians were crammed into Australia House on the Strand. I'd heard people say that coming to London allowed you to see Australia more clearly, But that was untrue. London was where you came to be more Australian than you were at home. On the ground floor of Australia House, champagne flowed like water. One famous Australian talked to another famous Australian as they looked over their shoulder to spot the next famous Australian. Actors, musicians, journalists, artists, writers, just an hors d'oeuvre away. Past and present Prime Ministers, John Gorton, Malcolm Fraser, Bob Hawke, Gough Whitlam and John Howard were there. Menzies' ghost hovered over the proceedings. Keating, the prime mover of the recently failed movement for an Australian Republic, was conspicuously absent. Howard, his face beaming with pride, worked the room effortlessly. Like everyone else, he was well-oiled. At one point, he stopped briefly to talk to me. 
I introduced myself as a disappointed Republican, which elicited a wry chuckle. Just as he remarked implausibly that the whole event this week in London was Republic neutral, the artist Margaret Olley, who was stalking celebrities mischievously with a camera, snapped his photo. Later, as I stumbled along Kingsway towards Holborn Tube Station, I imagined Ollie's photographs gracing the walls in some future exhibition of Bacchanalia at Australia House. Hundreds of Australians had flown from the opposite end of the world for an almighty bash in London. For many, it didn't seem to matter that the week's events were a stark reminder that Australia had yet to outgrow its colonial mentality, nor that we'd failed to grasp the true indicator of this mindset. We'd had a good time. I've often looked back to that morning in Westminster Abbey. Over time, its significance has changed. At first, it seemed only to reinforce the failure of the Republic referendum in November 99. After a decade of campaigning, the Republican movement ended, defeated and divided. Eight months later, here we were in London commemorating the fact that the Australian Constitution was born within a statute of British Parliament, when we could have been celebrating Australia's first year as an independent Commonwealth with its own head of state. Gough Whitlam couldn't have been more correct when he remarked that the road of the constitutional reformer in Australia is long and hard. 22 years after the Republic referendum, the Australian constitution remains frozen, while the Republic, a national political project struggling for relevance in an era of global political crises, kneels dutifully in the Abbey, waiting for the Queen's casket to be carried down the aisle. We've come no further, and if recent polls are any indication at all, the passion for change seems lukewarm at best. Where to, then, from here? From the moment the modern Republican movement began in the early 1960s with the writings of Geoffrey Dutton and Donald Horne, the vision we've had for an Australian Republic has been grounded in a familiar set of arguments that have shifted surprisingly little since. Geoffrey Dutton, in 1963, with that characteristic patrician flair, claimed that our failure to become a republic was the most monumental tribute, he said, to our national intellectual indolence. We hadn't reached an adult relationship with Britain. Instead, Dutton argued, we traded our independence for a stucco portal of ancient pomposities and the syrup of a royal visit. A few years later, in the lucky country, Donald Horne insisted that the time had come to end the cultural cringe and break free from Australia's provincial image as the home of backwater colonialism. Only a republic, Horne said, could put an end to Australia's psychological dependence on Britain and create a less derivative, a more confident and mature society. Or in the words of countless newspaper opinion pieces over the years, a republic would represent Australia's coming of age, which is surely one of the tightest cliches in the lexicon of Australian nationalism. So with Dutton and Horn, you can see how the masculine pride of Republican intellectuals was really affronted. They were embarrassed by Australia's willingness to cling to the apron strings of the mother country, and they were worried about what overseas visitors would think of us. As Geoffrey Dutton lamented, Australians are anonymous, featureless, nothing men. Similar feelings of humiliation underwrote the foundation of the Australian Republican movement in 1991. 
On Australia Day 1988, Malcolm Turnbull watched from the top of a large building in Sydney's CBD as a crowd of dignitaries gathered at the Opera House. The most important speech, Turnbull recalled, the longest one on that day, the one that was accorded the place of honour, was not uttered, he wrote, by an Australian. It was given by an Englishman, Prince Charles. Our own national leaders in Australia were just warm-ups, warm-ups for the Prince of Wales, said Turnbull. And it was this rooftop epiphany that really sparked Turnbull's resolution to campaign for an Australian republic. That whole bicentennial year, Malcolm Turnbull wrote, was a year of shame. Every major event was presided over by a member of the British royal family. When author Thomas Keneally launched the Australian Republican movement at The Rocks in Sydney in July 1991, Malcolm Turnbull and Donald Horne were sitting beside him. Keneally spoke of the movement's determination to overturn what he called the inherent inferiority complex, which had convinced Australians that they weren't worthy to manage their own affairs or speak with an independent voice. Until we become a republic, Keneally told the assembled media, Australia would remain a stunted nation with a divided soul. Now, it was hardly surprising that the Australian Republican movement's raison d'etre was grounded in this cultural nationalism of the 1960s, when the first stirrings of modern republicanism emerged. All this talk of undersized blokes who needed to stand on their own two feet harked back to Henry Lawson's poem, A Song of the Republic, written in 1887, which dramatically called on the sons of the South, aroused at last, to make a choice between the old dead tree and the young tree green. Now, the ARM in the 1990s did reject the racist bedrock of Henry Lawson's republicanism, and they also, of course, fervently embraced British parliamentary and legal institutions. The ARM's platform echoed, in fact, Lawson's juxtaposition of a youthful, democratic, patriotic Australian republic with the hierarchical, class-ridden society of the old world, which, of course, the British monarchy spectacularly embodied. At its core... An Australian Republic has always been about severing the remaining constitutional ties to the United Kingdom. It's the continued existence of these external ties, this lingering British connection, this foreign head of state, that for Republicans has long represented the persistence of Australia's colonial mentality. Since the failure of the Republic referendum in November 1999, and indeed well before, there have been two main problems with this way of thinking. As Australia's economic, cultural and political ties gradually shifted away from Britain and towards the US and Asia in the late 20th century, the British connection withered in spite of the fact that Australia had remained a constitutional monarchy. This combined with the increasingly multicultural fabric of Australian society, undermined the purchase of those old arguments for republic independence, which had continually been framed purely in terms of our relationship with Britain and its increasingly dysfunctional, if somewhat amusing, royal family. Hovering above a succession of tabloid scandals, the Queen reigned in lonely dignity, seemingly untouchable, attracting more public affection as she aged. But the greater problem, the real blind spot and failure of imagination, 
the true marker of Australia's colonial mentality hadn't been placed in the same field of vision. I remember that the program for that service in Westminster Abbey in July 2000 proudly proclaimed that the Australian people had created one of the world's most democratic constitutions. The Commonwealth, the program declared, had been forged with the consent of the people. The people of Australia had entered the 20th century with Federation as a nation with a united destiny. But really, if you look at these words carefully, how could this be true when the dispossession and disenfranchisement of Australia's first peoples was the starting point of the new Federation? The very basis of the Australian Constitution and the Commonwealth's creation rested on the exclusion of Indigenous Australians. And when you add to that the frontier wars that were ongoing in the early 20th century, particularly in the centre and north of Australia, you can't see Federation as peaceful. Instead, Federation is actually deeply implicated in the taking of Indigenous lands without treaty, without consent, without compensation. 100 years later, in the heart of the former British Empire, it seemed impossible to acknowledge these basic historical facts. Even today, I think that our concept of the Australian polity still fails to be genuinely inclusive. We sleepwalk in the footsteps of our colonial forebears, who introduced both responsible government and federation without negotiating with Indigenous Australians. We've imagined our full constitutional independence, our republican future, as simply being a question of deleting the monarchical references from the Constitution. At the same time, despite a raft of government committees over the past decade, we're still no closer to a referendum on the position of First Nations peoples in the Constitution. The discriminatory race power, Section 5126, still stands... Indigenous Australians remain invisible in our founding document. These two nation-defining issues, one shelved indefinitely, the Republic, the other inching forward at glacial pace, constitutional recognition, both tightly controlled by those in power, and yet they've played out in parallel universes. Now, in the wake of the Uluru Statement from the heart, and its call for a constitutionally enshrined voice to Parliament, the time has surely come to place our Constitution on what Noel Pearson has called just foundations, to rethink the rationale for an Australian Republic and really come to grips with what it means to end the colonial mentality once and for all. To do so, Australians must once more ask themselves... Does the conception of Australia include Indigenous people or not? Without a proper constitutional response to this fundamental question, how can Australia hope to become a fully reconciled republic? The true source of Australia's shame isn't the delivery of a speech by Queen Elizabeth or Prince Charles. It's the continued exclusion of Australia's First Nations peoples from our constitution. The persistence of Australia's colonial mentality, our failure to become a genuinely post-colonial nation, has little to do 
with the British royal family and everything to do with the Commonwealth Government's hands-off attitude to the Constitution, particularly the Government's refusal to entertain the possibility of a constitutionally enshrined voice for Indigenous Australians. It's been 50 years since the last significant change to the Constitution in 1967. It's this attitude which really reeks of paternalism and possession. And it's got a familiar ring. We will decide who comes into this Constitution and the circumstances in which they come. Barely a month after he came to power in 2018, Scott Morrison was dismissive of constitutional change when he was pressed on the matter by the ABC's Fran Kelly. It was a terse exchange. Kelly, will you take a look at the Indigenous statement, the Uluru Statement from the Heart? It's called for a constitutionally enshrined representative body for our First Nations people. Morrison, I don't. Kelly, that's a priority for a lot of Indigenous people. Morrison, I don't support a third chamber. Kelly, it's not a third chamber they're talking about. No, 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 Morrison says. Kelly, it's a representative body. No, Fran, it really is. No, 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 it's not, Kelly says. <laughs> Morrison, people can dress it up any way they like, but I think two chambers is enough. Questioned again in March 2021, Morrison remained adamant that his government wouldn't support a constitutionally enshrined voice to Parliament. It's never been the government's policy, he said, to have that process enshrined in the Constitution. I think that's pretty clear. Morrison's refusal to countenance substantive constitutional change was also reflected, of course, in the terms that his government set up for the National Co-Design Group, which has been chaired by Professor Marcia Langton and Professor Tom Karma. Now, that co-design group was explicitly instructed, its terms of reference, as the Prime Minister made clear, were to make no recommendations whatsoever as to the legal form of the voice. Circumventing the Constitution entirely, Morrison has backed more practical solutions, including the valuable work of the co-design group, which, in its interim report, submitted in October last year, presented proposals for an Indigenous voice that were comprised of a national voice and local and regional voices. This, it claimed, would enhance local and regional decision-making and regional governance. Now, as Scott Morrison told Fran Kelly in 2018, he's passionate, he said, about working together to ensure we can bring Australians together around these issues. But, said Morrison, that doesn't mean we have to agree on every proposal, but we'll treat every proposal with respect, we'll find a way forward. This sounds eminently reasonable, but it isn't true. Dismissing a proposal out of hand and refusing to even countenance a constitutionally enshrined voice is hardly treating it with respect, nor does it acknowledge the extensive consultation process with Indigenous communities throughout Australia, the First Nations regional dialogues, that led to the release of the Uluru Statement in May 2017. First and foremost, Scott Morrison's position demonstrates yet another failure of his leadership. As Galloway Yunapingu, leader of the Gumach clan of the Yongu people, wrote in the Monthly in July 2016, if a settlement between the Commonwealth and First Nations people is to be achieved, a Prime Minister must lead and complete it. Let us have an honest answer, Yunapingu declared, from the Australian people to an honest question. 
While Morrison and his fellow naysayers in Cabinet might be willing to support a legally non-binding recognition of Indigenous Australians in the preamble to the Constitution, similar to John Howard's proposal in 1999, precisely the weak symbolic change that the Uluru Statement rejected in favour of a constitutionally enshrined voice, Morrison and his colleagues remained steadfast in their opposition to any revising of the Constitution proper. Whenever he's been confronted with a proposition, Morrison's either given it short shrift or simply ignored it. Given the constrictive mechanism for change that's hardwired into the Constitution, Section 128, which requires a double majority of states and voters, if any referendums to pass, Morrison and like-minded Conservatives frequently argue that any proposition put to a referendum would most likely fail. In the same breath that they admit they'll do nothing to support the idea, they then play sophologist and predict that it will fail. It's important to get this right, they say, let's not rush, and so on. Now, if you translate that, it means effectively, we don't want a constitutionally enshrined voice and we'll in fact do all we can to ensure that it doesn't have bipartisan support. Morrison's role as the champion of border protection animates him more than any other activity save public displays of faith and prayer. Along with the I Stopped These trophy of an asylum seeker's boat that presumably still sits on a desk in Scott Morrison's office, there's a portrait of the Queen that hangs on the wall behind him, proudly rescued from exile after the Turnbull interregnum. My personal position, he told Samantha Armitage on Sunrise in March, is that I've always supported the constitutional monarchy. For Morrison, the thumbs-up man, who apparently, in his own words, loves all of Australia's history, the Constitution, like Australia Day, is stitched up. It requires no rethinking. It requires no significant change. His Constitution and his country are already complete. This complacent view, of course, is one conceived from inside the structures of power. And it's one that consistently fails to see the perspective of those on the outside who've long been excluded. Such is the luxury of those who can already see their faces in the Constitution, regardless of whether they're constitutional monarchists or republicans. Even Malcolm Turnbull, who led the charge to make minimal changes to Australia's Constitution during the Republic referendum, wasn't willing, as Prime Minister to support substantive change that would enshrine an Indigenous voice to Parliament. In the midst of Morrison's intransigence, I spoke with Ewan Elder, Aussie Cruz, and Jiringanj Ewan spokesperson, Warren Foster. Both Cruz and Foster argued that Indigenous sovereignty had never been extinguished, that the Constitution was foisted on them without their consent, like so many other aspects of whitefellow law and culture. When I asked Cruz about Morrison's dismissal of the Uluru Statement and its call for a constitutionally enshrined voice, he just shrugged his shoulders. Morrison, he said to me, can only respond like that because he can't understand the left-outness of Aboriginal people. He can't see history from our perspective. Foster was even more pointed. We're one of the poorest people. We've suffered a lot from the taking of our land, and yet we're still willing to walk forward with other Australians, 
but only on an equal basis. Back then, in 1901, we didn't have a voice. We weren't part of that constitution. We couldn't have a say. We're not there. We're not written in it. So how come they think they've got jurisdiction over us? If Australians are to learn from their history, as the Prime Minister and so many other politicians are constantly asking them to do, then recognition of Indigenous Australians surely has to be more than ornamental, more than a paragraph of beautiful words that soothe the soul and change nothing. It requires something much harder. It requires the Commonwealth to cede ground, not only to share history, but also to share power and recognise another historical experience and all of the social, economic and political consequences that flow from it. In her new book, The Gun, the Ship and the Pen, Warfare, Constitutions and the Making of the Modern World, British historian Linda Colley argues that a constitution, like a novel, invents and tells the story of a place and a people. But what story of place and people is told by Australia's constitution? Humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God, the Constitution's preamble proclaims that the Australian people have agreed to unite in one indissoluble federal commonwealth under the Crown. The Constitution, says the preamble, is enacted by the Queen's Most Excellent Majesty, by and with the advice and consent of the Lord's spiritual and temporal and commons. In other words, the implicit sovereignty of the Australian people is in fact underwritten by the Archbishops of Canterbury and York, the Bishops of London, Durham and Winchester, other Bishops of the Church of England, Life Peers, the Earl Marshal, Lord Great Chamberlain, hereditary peers elected under the Standing Orders and the House of Commons. And so, in fact, the spiritual sovereignty that's inscribed in our Constitution emanates from the Church of England and the Queen or King who stands as its titular head. But today, who aside from a deluded monarchist rump would seriously argue that our constitution should continue to be grounded in the spiritual leadership of the Anglican Church or the Queen's ailing majesty, for that matter? The story laid down in the preamble to the Australian constitution, which was written half a century before the legal category of Australian citizenship even existed, is surely broken. That story no longer reflects who we are. It speaks only to constitutional lawyers, perhaps, and of times past, when we were British subjects and meshed in empire rather than citizens of a democratic nation. As for our constitution itself, while it lives as a legal document, it has little meaning in the body politic. Ignorance about the constitution is pervasive. From the first sample surveys conducted in the 1960s through the 1990s and more recent Australian Electoral Commission surveys and parliamentary committees, there is widespread consensus that the lack of understanding of the Constitution in the general community remains the most substantial obstacle to future constitutional reform. Australians have never looked to the Constitution to express their identity. John Hurst pointed out 20 years ago that Australian society is actually characterised by a strange gap that lack of attachment between a democratic society and its democratic institutions of government. 
If we do have an attachment to constitutional principles, it exists in ideas like a fair go and other ill-defined democratic freedoms, ideas that are given force and meaning through an understood contract of civil society. Ours is a constitution more imagined than material, more the stuff of abstract faith and belief, however misplaced, than ink, text and parchment. For all the Constitution's silence on citizenship and the democratic principles that Australians supposedly share, there's a glaring dissonance at the heart of our Constitution. It's entirely disconnected from the place and country in which we live, severed from the spiritual sovereignty of Indigenous Australians that, as we know, has reigned in Australia for more than 60,000 years. This is surely the missing story in the Constitution, the absence of which constitutes the colonial mentality that still needs to be shattered. It's their spiritual sovereignty, the ancestral tie between the land or Mother Nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, as the Uluru Statement makes clear, that has never been ceded or extinguished and coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. New historical knowledge has, we hope, the capacity to change the way Australians think and act on country and about their country. There's a growing awareness, I think, of the inseparable connection between country and culture because it's such a defining feature of Aboriginal Australia. And that idea is slowly permeating our entire society. It's shifting the way we see the nation's past, present and future. With the release of the Uluru Statement in 2017, Uluru became a sacred text as well as a sacred place. Together with the Uluru Statement, which is more poetic, in fact, more inspiring, more reflective of the country in which we live than our own constitution, this new historical knowledge has the potential to transform our attitude entirely towards constitutional change. For anyone out there listening who's read even a handful of the histories published since the 1980s that have completely overturned the myth of Australia being settled peacefully, it's possible to understand why and how our constitution embodies the big lie, the lie that the land was there for the taking, as if Indigenous Australians were rightly dispossessed and merely destined for extinction. The laws of our federal and state governments that attempted to govern every aspect of Aboriginal people's lives since the invasion began in the late 18th century were conceived, written and legislated without consultation with the very people who were most affected by them. And that's why the framers of the Uluru Statement have demanded that any future reform goes beyond symbolism. Story alone is not enough, nor is an acknowledgement of country. The glaring inequalities of power that are embedded in the Constitution have to be addressed. Constitutional enshrinement of a voice to Parliament is fundamental to Makarata and truth-telling. Megan Davis, one of the architects of the Uluru Statement, has tried to remind us of the underestimated power of what this future constitutional moment might mean. 
A First Nations voice in the Constitution, established by referendum, would shift Indigenous affairs out of the realm of ideological party politics where our issues are ruthlessly measured against utilitarian rule. Such a voice, says Davis, would be imbued with the legitimacy of the First Nations peoples and the Australian people voting in unity at a referendum and conducting a dialogue with each other through the Parliament for the century ahead. Symbolic and substantive. In recent years, Australia's political leaders, I think, have lost the ability to enlarge the vision of the nation, to give it life imaginatively and positively through political speech, and to lay down a path of renewal and change. A complacent, self-satisfied thumbs-up seems to be the best that we can do. When Paul Keating addressed Federal Parliament in June 95 and outlined his government's rationale for a republic, he loaded his vision with a multitude of possibilities. The creation of an Australian republic is not an act of rejection, it's one of recognition. In making the change, we will recognise that our deepest respect is for our Australian heritage. Our deepest affection is for Australia and our deepest responsibility is to Australia's future. An Australian head of state, said Keating, can embody our modern aspirations, our cultural diversity, our evolving partnerships with Asia and the Pacific, our quest for reconciliation with Aboriginal Australians, our ambition to create a society in which women have equal opportunity, equal representation and equal rights. Almost 30 years later, we can see how Keating asked the impossible. Believing that a minimalist republic that prided itself on little change would completely transform the nation's identity. What Keating believed was implicit in the Declaration of an Australian Republic must now be made explicit. The act of recognition that he placed first, an Australian head of state, must now come second to the more fundamental act of recognising Indigenous Australians in our constitution. The Republican vision of Australia's independence, for so long conceived narrowly as the mere severing of an external connection with a withered anomalous crown, must finally be grounded on our own soil, on thousands of generations of Indigenous occupation. In essence, this is an entirely different conception of Australian independence, one that grows out of the country itself, begins with a central act of recognition, enshrines a new relationship with First Nations peoples on an equal basis, and lays the just foundations of Australia's constitution and the future of the Commonwealth. You can read Mark's piece in the latest issue of The Monthly.